Good morning. My name's Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone. I'm so glad that you're with us today. Um, today we start a new conversation that we're calling uh, Formed by the Gospel. Uh, the word gospel is one of those terms um, that most people, even non-Christians, in our society would probably say they have some idea of what it means, uh, some idea of, of what the gospel means. But if you were to press them, um, it gets a bit hazy. Uh, and maybe it comes out, well, you know, the gospel is something about Jesus dying so we can go to heaven when we die or something like that. Even, even for Christians, um, it's one of those terms that can become so familiar and mundane uh, that we put it on the shelf and we say, we got it. Pastor, good, thank you. No need to preach to the choir. Uh, we remember Sunday school, remember the felt board. We got it. Let's move on to cool stuff like Revelation or the Nephilim. Um, if you've never looked that up, just go ahead and Google it. And then I'll see you in about four hours because it is a rabbit hole. Um, in fact, that, that assumed familiarity with the gospel can actually cause some Christians to get offended when you preach the gospel because they see it as belittling or patronizing. Like, I, we, we know it, buddy. Get on. Like, we, we're boring. Tell me something I don't know. We kind of can have this approach when it comes uh, to hearing the gospel preached. But this idea of once you hear it, then you move on is a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the gospel. Okay? Uh, Christians tend to think that the gospel is once and done. You hear it, you get it, gets you in the door, and then you're good. You go on, right? So the gospel for many Christians is like math or science or history or any other subject that you have to mentally assimilate some, some ideas, right? And uh, you might be saying, well, yeah, right? I mean, this is pervasive. This is, it's like any subject. Once you figure out the tenets of it, then you got it and you can move on. Once you have it memorized, like you go arithmetic and, you know, the algebra, whatever, you move on to the next thing. So then when you get to the pearly gates, um, Peter is going to meet you with a clipboard. And he's going to quiz you, right? And he's going to be like, who's, who's Jesus' mother? And you're going to I know that answer. Check. Who's Jesus? You're like, well, son of God. Check, right? Who's Jesus' cousin? And then you're like, oh. You start sweating a little bit. Like you wish you weren't staring at Susie when your Sunday school teacher was teaching that lesson, right? Oh, I wish I was... Who's Jesus' cousin? And the questions just get increasingly harder. And the guys that answer the most questions, they get the big mansion. And you, me and you, we don't know much. We get the little mansions, right? And, and you might know people like this that approach Christianity like this, like, you know, and that kind of, and they're always really happy to point out that they know more of the Bible than you, right? They make you feel dumb about it, right? And you yourself even might be thinking right now, I know who Jesus' cousin is. And you're particularly proud of yourself right now, right? Well, listen, this is the deal. This is what you have to realize about that. That's a Monty Python skit. What's the color of the horse in the apocalypse? Blue. No green. Ah! Right? Off to purgatory. Y'all, that's not how reality works. That's not how real life works. All right? And that's not how the gospel works. All right? Real knowledge, true knowledge always matters because it impacts your real life. That's true knowledge, right? It has, true knowledge has application. It does something. And reality always has context. Reality always has context, right? Reality, if it's true, okay, it always has something that came before it. 
It always has something that came after it. Reality, y'all, so much more interesting than fiction. Reality has nuance and complication to it, right? And this is really getting at how you view the Bible as an entire book. Look at me. The Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is not a textbook. It is first and foremost an account. The Bible is a story, y'all. It's not a reference book. It's not an instruction booklet for life, although some like to think it that way and whatever. It is first and foremost a story. The Bible is a story. It's the story of the people of God. It's the story of this man Jesus and his claims. And it has context. It has real history. It has things that came. It has a real people group in real history where it really happened. That's reality. Reality is always way more interesting and complicated and nuanced than fiction, y'all. Don't have to, you don't have to make stuff up to get good stories, you know what I mean? I mean, the, real, the Bible really claims, the really big claim of the Bible, y'all, is that it is the story of all of reality. That's really the claim. It's not a reference book. It's not a textbook that you can master. It is saying that it is the story of all reality. And if that is true, either it masters you right? You don't master it. It masters you. The, the claim of the Bible is that it is the story behind the why of all of creation. That's the claim. It's, tell, it's filling in the gaps that we can't get by mere existence and our education and knowledge and asking other people. It's filling in the, the Bible is primary, primarily the story of God. The Bible is primarily the story of God. The story of God engaging the story of God creating, the story of God pursuing, God loving, and in the climax of that story, God dying at the hands of his rebellious creation on behalf of that rebellious creation, right? So the fact that the Bible, y'all, is a long narrative that has a real point in history, a real people group, a real context, helps us understand how to read it. That means that the Bible is not first and foremost a bunch of facts about the world. It's not a, it's not a grab, grab sack of ideas and facts that you can just pull them out and take what you want and leave the rest. It's not a science book, y'all. The Bible doesn't claim to, to reveal to you all of the nuances of physical science. It doesn't. It just doesn't. And when people treat it like that, they get in weird addies, okay? It's not a science book. The Bible, this means that you can't just open the Bible and pull out one little fact and build a whole philosophy on it. You can't do that. It has context. It, it, it's, it's ha something happened before it, something happened after it. Everything in the Bible, y'all, is part of a story. Even the Proverbs, which is maybe the most kind of, you would say, well, isn't that just a, you know, it's a bunch of facts? Well, yeah, but even that happened in history. Someone wrote that. It has a time frame, you know? It has context, right? The real point of all this, right, I mean, is that if we chop it up, y'all, if we chop up the Bible, if we treat it like a buffet line, which we, we will, I mean, who doesn't want to do that, right? I mean, who, there's parts of the Bible that are weird, like the Nephilim. We just talked about that. I'm telling you, go look it up later. You're going to be just hours of Googling, right? Don't trust Google, but just you can look it up, right? <laughs> the, the Bible is, is unbelievably bewildering if you read it. And there are parts of the Bible that I would like to leave out. There are parts that I, would, I, that I come to and I say, I don't. Can I, I'm, a, I'm the guy with the mic. There are parts of the Bible I don't understand breathe. Like, it's okay. Can we, let's all just say, I don't know. Can we say that? I, so who didn't say it? Who didn't say it? Well, I didn't say it. Like, I know the, I know all of the Bible, right? No, there are parts of the Bible. There's, that's the most helpful thing you can say to someone sometimes when they come to you. This, I, I don't know. 
There are parts of the Bible that I don't get, and there are parts of the Bible that I would love to just leave out. But when we do that, you have to concede that you have become the authority. You've become the master puppet, and you're pulling your slice. It's a, you've made it a buffet when you do that. You're just picking the parts you like, and you're leaving the broccoli and the vegetables for the other people, right? You can't do that. When you pick out parts of the Bible that you like and just build a whole, a whole worldview on, a whole philosophy on it, you get real crazy. Y'all, every cult offshoot of Christianity, I just described it to you. They pick parts of the Bible they like. Dude, I'm telling you, there's more than we can mention, okay? They pick parts of the Bible they like, they cut out the bits they don't like, and then all of a sudden, this guy's the Messiah and they're drinking Kool-Aid, right? The whole, the whole Kool-Aid thing, y'all, that whole thing, 78, Jim Jones, whatever like that, dude, that was, it was Reverend Jim Jones. That was a Pentecostal movement, y'all. Someone took parts of the Bible they liked, they left out the other stuff, and then boom, drinking Kool-Aid. 900 people, tragic. Have you, I mean, there's almost all of the cults in American history, someone picking parts of the Bible they like. You get down weird addies when you start picking out parts of the Bible you like. You're like, oh, let's, you know what? I like the sovereignty. Well, you know what? I really don't like the sovereignty of God. Let's just pick a little bit of that, like a little bit of sovereignty, like, you know, but not too much, right? I'll, ta- I'll take some mercy. I mean, who doesn't love Jesus, right? Everyone's going to take Jesus, right? But the Old Testament, ah, that's a little weird, right? Those are the parts that I kind of say. Most perversions of Christianity are that. They can be traced to someone picking out parts they like, right? So the Bible's very form, y'all, the very form the Bible, the packet it comes in, it's form to us, is it's telling us about how we should read it. It's telling us about how it is intended to be understood, how it is intended to be known, because it, it's, it's story. And, and, it, and it's not just uh, known like math or science. It, it is intended to do more than that, in your heart and in your life, right? This is what every filmmaker knows, right? Narrative forms you more than a textbook does. Narrative always forms you more than a textbook. A narrative, a story, a story always impacts you differently than a textbook does, doesn't it? Because in a story, you're invited, you don't even have a choice. Someone tells you a story, guess what you do? You find yourself in the story. And most of us are like, I'm definitely the hero, right? I'm definitely the good guy. And we all, every time a story is told, you will inevitably, you can't avoid it. You're going to find yourself in the story. You're going to relate to, I've been lonely before. I've had difficulty before. I've failed before. And it creates this relationship between you and every story. You see, every movie you watch is forming you guys. It's inviting you to find yourself in that story. And that's how it impacts us. We walk away thinking differently about the cosmos when we're invited into a story, right? And even in academic studies, philosophy, science, physics, medicine, y'all, it's never about mental assent to an idea. It's never about just mental assent, just mentally agreeing to a theory, right? It's about taking that idea and applying it to real life, right? What does it mean? How does it affect you? How can it be utilized? Think of this, think of this. You may understand the theory of how to build a house or, or, or how a house is built, right? We got engineers in here, right? So some of you understand the math and the physics of it, but actually being the person that builds the house, like that's a completely different set of muscles, isn't it? I mean, that's worlds apart. I mean, we can sit in a very comfortable AC room and design a house and know the intricacies of how it's supposed to be built, all the load bearing, all the foundational things, all the electrical things, but you doing that thing, that's a very, very, see, that's applied knowledge, right? So, and, if you, and if we separate the two, if we separate a very academic understanding from a life application, then neither of them are relevant anymore, right? What good is a bunch of blueprints if you don't have the will to build the house, 
The whole thing's become dumb. No one cares, right? <laughs> both are important, but when they, when they become separated, they, be, they both become useless. We chatting, all right? You put a, get your hand around a two by four and a nail and a hammer, right? That's a different situation than sitting there. Okay, so there is a type of knowledge that requires experience to truly possess it. There is a type of knowledge that necessitates, requires. Listen to me, man. There is a type of knowledge that requires experience, right, to truly possess it. What on earth does the Bible mean when it says taste and see? What's it getting at? It's helping us understand, look, unless you taste, unless you put it in, unless something gets inside of you from this whole thing, what's the point? The, the invitation of the Bible is to taste, put it in you, digest it, let it marinate. See, you know, we can follow that whole analogy, right? This is massive, but let's not. Let's keep going, right? The story of the Bible has implications, right? This, this, this idea helps us think of biblical truth. We have to know the story, y'all. We, ha we have to actually, you need to, you need to read the Bible. You need to know it, right? But the story has implications. It makes claims, the story asserts realities, like fundamental realities about like everything, <laughs> all right? And is it any good knowing it if you aren't willing to obey it, right? I mean, if you aren't willing to submit to it, what's the good in hearing it? What's the good in hearing it if you don't really hear it? That's what Jesus talked about. He says, you guys hear it, but you don't hear it. What's he getting at? Well, I think he's getting at, in some ways, this applied knowledge. This, this theologian is going to call this the sanctification gap. This is the sanctification gap. It's the gap between what you know and how you live, right? Or you can say it this way. You can have, well, like, we, got great, we got great doctrine in here, right? Aren't we orthodox around here, right? Believe the Bible, right? Look, you can have amazing orthodoxy, but you don't have orthopraxy. You don't practice it. Doesn't matter anymore. It becomes completely irrelevant, right? So I'm... <laughs> So most Christians feel like church is like, do I want that? Do I need that? Iffy, I don't care. The worship, the Bible, well, you know, when you separate the idea from the practice of it, it will become irrelevant to you. It'll have no meaning to you, right? Because there is a certain kind of knowledge that requires experience to understand it, right? Orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. That's what theologians call. You can write those words down if you want. In other words, if the knowledge doesn't translate, y'all, to real life, then the question that I think Jesus would ask you or that he implicitly asks throughout the Gospels is, do you really know it? If it does not apply to your real life, I think Jesus would say, you've not heard it. You've heard it, but you've not heard it, right? This is, this is an idea that that's permeates the entire Bible. You've heard it, but you've not heard it, right? If it's not affecting you the way it was intended to, then Jesus would say, you've listened, but you've not listened. You've heard, but you've not heard, right? This, to me seems one of the primary things Jesus was addressing in his day. Think about it. He came to a people extremely religious, right? They had rules for their rules. <laughs> they had rules for everything, right? Most of them had the first five books of the Bible memorized, right? They could explain in detail how to live right before God. Where they struggled was actually living right before God, right? I mean, think about the Jews, right? The Jews, the best firsthand information on God, they had the corner on God. <laughs> they, had, they had the best information, all the right rules, all the right rituals. They sang all the right songs, right? Their services couldn't get more biblically sound. And yet Jesus had the harshest words for these people, the religious people. Like just, I mean, we just throw a little cork, I mean, throw a monkey wrench in your gears, right? 
It was full of people, I mean, sorry, it was people full of good doctrine about God who did not recognize him and killed God. Like, put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) It was the people who had the best doctrine on who God was and yet did not recognize him and actually killed him when he came to him, right? Jesus had a way of talking about people who were full of the truth of God, but weren't full of the love of God. He said, you guys honor me with your lips, but your heart, your heart's far from me, right? See, it wasn't knowledge they lacked. And for many of us, when it comes to the gospel, it's not knowledge we lack. It was letting the knowledge form them, right? It was letting, letting the knowledge change, confront them, letting it confront them, right? It was letting it love them. It was letting the knowledge disarm them, break them down, build them up, right? They had a form of godliness, but they had denied its power. It was truth. Yeah, it was truth. But it didn't fill them with love, right? Because their eyes were blind to the glory that that truth was meant to reveal, right? They knew it, but they didn't know it. So this idea, you can trace this entire idea through the entirety of the Bible. So when it comes to the gospel, this is what we find that's very interesting about the gospel, really fascinating about the gospel in the New Testament. All throughout the New Testament, the authors are preaching the gospel to people who already heard the gospel. That's the New Testament. Not once, not twice, not three times, like over and over and over again. Remember, most of the New Testament are what? Letters. Letters to established churches, people that had already said yes to God. These are letters to people who had already heard the gospel. And what you're going to find over and over and over on repeat is the gospel. You're going to preach the gospel over and over to people who've already heard it, right? So here's just a few examples, okay? Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision in your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, right, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. Romans 5, 6 through 9. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, what we read at the beginning of the service, right? What does all, what does all this mean? He's preaching the gospel to people who already heard the gospel. Well, apparently, y'all, the gospel's not once and done. That's what it means. Apparently, you don't check the box and move on. You don't graduate from it and then move on to something else. In fact, 2 Peter tells us to grow in the grace of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means the grace isn't a one-time experience. Praise his name, huh? Someone get excited about that. Grace isn't a one-time experience. And what you're going to find in the Bible is going to confound even more people. The Holy Spirit's not a one-time experience. It's like over and over. Fill me again. Fill me again. I need more grace. I need more grace. Over and over. Grace is not a one-time experience, y'all. I was screaming there. Sorry about that. Colossians 1.23 implores us to continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So it seems to me that there is something so confounding about the gospel. There is something so disorienting about the gospel, something so backwards to our thinking that we have to routinely be reminded of what happened and what Jesus claimed he did. What else can be said about these things, right? Or as the the old hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take it, seal it, seal it for thy courts above. So, It just makes sense that from time to time, we routinely allow the simplicity of the truths of the gospel to saturate and wash over our hearts and mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. So over the next month, 
We want to kind of sweep away the cobwebs, take it off the shelf, and look at the gospel, right? And when we do, I think many of us will realize that you had some misconceptions about what the gospel really is, what it really says, and what it really claims to do, right? And it might reveal, as we dig into the truths of the gospel, that some of us are functioning with what theologians call a truncated gospel, truncated gospel. It means you understand parts of it, some truths of it, a little bit of it, but bits are missing. If you truncate something, you cut off the beginning and you cut off the end, right? It's like you get the middle bit, like you get the gist of it, but what does truncated mean? It means it's been taken out of context, right? You cut off the beginning and you cut off the end, right? And when uh, you combine confusion about the gospel with, in the Bible Belt, a bunch of assumptions about what it is, like it never ends well, you know? Combining confusion and assumptions, right? Not a good thing. And many of the misconceptions we have are somewhat due to the fact that we live in the Bible Belt, right? And we assume that we we already know it. So here is a a few common truncated versions of the gospel that I'm going to lay before you today, right? If you grew up in church, or you went to youth group, or even better, you went to youth camp. Anybody? Youth camp, right? Okay, no one wants to admit to that. And... (laughs) And when you were 10, right, at youth camp, uh, you heard a middle school pastor with a goatee and a nose ring give you uh, two options during an emotionally charged evening of Kumbaya, right? And the two options, uh, they came at the end, right? And the two options sounded something like this. Do you want to burn in hell or do you want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy, right? So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure 10-year-old me wants to go to heaven with mommy and daddy, right? So is that the gospel? Well, it's... Sort of, yeah. So, I mean, kind of, it's part of it. Doesn't God want to save you from hell? Yeah, that's it. That's in the, guys, that's in the gospel. That's part of it, right? Is it the whole gospel? Oh, I mean, can, can, can that gospel really motivate in the long run? Like, what if you get in a fight with mommy and daddy? And you're like, oh, no, no, I don't want to be with mommy and daddy anymore. I'll take hell, fine, whatever, you know? Like, well, yeah, you know, there's that too, right? You know, does, but does, does this, does that story, does that gospel inspire to fall on your face in love and adoration of the Savior? Does that gospel fill you with love and affections and transform you to love God and serve others? No! It's like fire insurance for your soul. You just get it in the background. You don't worry about it anymore. You, you sign the thing and, you, you know, and you're done with it. You move on, right? And it's like what Dallas Willard says, we have car insurance for the car that doesn't run. So, if it, you know, if we're good, if it breaks down, but it doesn't run in the first place. And so there's no, of course, of course it seems irrelevant to your life. You bought into a gospel that only kicks in when you die. That's a religion for death. That's not a religion for life. Is that what, I mean, right? I mean, it's always going to lack, that gospel is always going to lack the power to transform. Fear actually always lacks the power to transform, doesn't it, right? And you might put up with church for a while, Right? But that just doesn't have any long-term transforming power. Um, the gospel isn't say this prayer so that when you die, you can go to heaven. Okay? See, one of the things that that does is it cuts off the larger story of the gospel. It makes the gospel that, well, you're a sinner and God wants to save you. Well, that's true. That's a part of it. But it cuts off the beginning and the end of the story, right? The story of the gospel doesn't begin with sin. We're going to come back to that. The story of the gospel does not begin with sin and end with just your salvation. It's way larger than that. Way larger than that, 
okay? I think most Christians get that being a Christian isn't just about avoiding hell, right? Most, most of us are adults. We know, we know it's more complicated, more, you know, right? But I'll tell you a more subtle and deceiving gospel substitution, right? It's a version of Christianity that's been described as therapeutic, moralistic deism, okay? So those are some great words for you. So let me explain that to you. Uh, and this is by far the more subtle and perverse, uh, pervasive rather, it's perverse and pervasive, um, substitute of the gospel. And it's a version of God uh, that centers around you. So obviously we love it, right? Therapeutic, it's therapeutic. In other words, it is assessed. That gospel is assessed by how it makes you feel, okay? And it is a story about God, but in this story, God's like a cosmic clockmaker uh, who wound up creation, and then now he's left, and now creation's just ticking along on its own, and God doesn't need to intervene anymore. Um, he's kind of left us to our own devices. That's called deism, and deism really took off in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, the post-enlightenment, right? Of course, there's a God. I mean, look at creation. But now, after the scientific you know, revolution, the enlightenment, renaissance, all that kind of stuff, you know, we've debunked supernatural things. We can explain supernatural things through science now. And so, so we, we've, we've kind of disregarded the supernatural aspect of God. Yeah, he made the cosmos because we can't explain that, you know, especially at that time. But does he interact with us? No. Does he speak? No, God doesn't. No, he doesn't. He did that maybe, but not anymore, right? Does he make claims on your life? No. Does he supernaturally engage? No, that's deism. That's the, that's the theological position of deism. Now, most of us in this room would say, well, that's horrible. I don't. And yet we live functionally like deists. You know, like he, well, he did the thing. Does he interact with me? No. Does he have power? Is his arm too short to save? Right? All that kind of stuff, right? But is he, do I engage with him on a normal basis? No, many of, many of us are functioning deists. We have an idea of God that he made things and he, and he got it ticking, but, but I, I don't really know much. I mean, he doesn't really engage with me, right? This, this is a version of God that is subject to enlightenment thought, right? Where everything was explained by science and logic. So we believe in God, but does he supernaturally engage with us? So no matter what your statement of faith may be on paper, many of us function in deists' versions of, of what we believe about God. But the most sinister aspect of this substitute gospel um, isn't the therapeutic bit. It isn't the deist bit. It's the moralistic bit, moralistic component. See, therapeutic moralism, moralistic deism is a view of God in the gospel that says, if you are moral enough, if you obey the rules, if you're a good little boy, you know, good little girl, you know, the big 10, the 10 rules, the big ones, you know, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, you know, God will accept you. Well, this is, this is getting kind of nuancy now, isn't it? Because isn't that true? Right? Aren't, don't we supposed to be good? I mean, isn't, this is, this is what Christianity teaches, Chris, right? <laughs> well, this is what most religions teach. It is. Most religions all religions, almost, right? Have a founder, whatever, Buddha, Muhammad, even Jesus, right? And, and people view these founders of the religions as examples for their followers, right? We should strive to be like them. They're examples, right? And they have some sacred texts that tell us the particulars of how you're supposed to strive to, to achieve that thing, right? How to be accepted by God. That's, that's the, the, you know, and the whole point of, of most religions is follow these rules be more disciplined, do it right, and maybe if you're self-disciplined enough, maybe you'll get into heaven, you know? If you get on the pastor's good side. 
You know, you'll probably get into heaven then, right? Do you volunteer? Okay, but how much? Because, you know, God, he's not going to put up a slacker, you know? You know? Now, this, this is a, I, want, I hope right now you feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I hope you're getting some tension here. I'm trying to create that, right? Is the gospel, follow these rules, be more disciplined, and do it right, and you'll get into heaven? Y'all, that is not Christianity. Jesus is not first and foremost your example. He is first and foremost your savior. Jesus said, another example wouldn't do you any good. I sent prophets. Guess what they did to him? They killed him. They stoned him. You don't need another. You need a savior. That's the gospel. See, the gospel isn't advice. Most religions are advice. Do this, do that, things will go. The gospel is news. You know what the word gospel means? Good news. What does that mean about the gospel? Let's, let's say we're going to go into battle. Let's say we're going to go into battle, okay? Let's roll, you know, get geared up, get our ammo, all right? Let's go for it. We're ready to fight our enemy, right? And this guy comes over the hill and he says, look, man, the enemy, they're rallying. They're like, they're ready to go. They've got this many people and they've got this. And I think you should really, you should flank the left and we're going to send the snipers, Josh. We're going to send the snipers over to the, le- you know, the right side. And, and then, you know, Rosemary, we're going to send you around back and you're going to steamroll from the back. Okay, that's advice. That's advice. The gospel is the, the man comes back from the battlefront and he says, they're dead. They're all dead. Something happened. It's like the battle's been won. That's the gospel. That's how it transforms you. It's not mount up by your moral strength. It's that none of that was good in the first place and God has done for you what you could never do. The gospel is not advice. It's news. Something has been done on your behalf right? In that story, that news has context. It has things that came before it. It has things that go after. The gospel says no amount of rules would ever suffice to make you righteous, man. You need redemption, not examples. You need forgiveness, not another pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? You need a Moses who leads you out of slavery, right? You need a David who defeats the giant for you, right? All other religions say, do this, do that, and are essentially advice. Christianity is gospel. It is news. Something has happened. It's good news, right? That's the difference, right? The gospel isn't eternal insurance. The gospel isn't therapeutic moralistic deism. These are distortions of a lesser version that take away the power of the gospel, You see how these misunderstandings of what the gospel does, it takes the teeth away. It makes it not matter anymore. And it makes a couple people who are really good at following the rules mount up on their moral high horse and look down in superiority at the slackers that can't make it. That's not what the gospel does to you. The gospel takes a rebel and makes a worshiper, right? It takes someone who's fighting against the king and it makes them into someone who adores and respects and obeys the king. That's, rules can't do that, y'all. Am I just on repeat here? Am I just saying the same thing over and over again? I, I am, I, I am, right? Y'all, this is not, here's the crazy part. We're gonna wrap it up here. 
This, these, this idea of the perversions of the gospel, this idea of substitutions of the gospel, these are not a new thing. Like this isn't just a post-enlightenment Bible Belt South, you know, consequence, y'all. Perversions of the gospel have been happening since the New Testament. Galatians, let me read it for you right here. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul says, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be. He just says the exact same thing twice. Did you catch that? Like the he just said that. He says it again twice, right? There are gospels even then that were completely contrary. They were distortions of the gospel. What was the distortion in Galatia that Paul was addressing? Well, he explains it. Let me read it. He says in 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by morality, by being good, or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? if it really was in vain. So again, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? What's that? That's moralistic effort, achievement, your strength. Does God work miracles and save by your strength or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, this is a 2,000 some odd year old iteration of moralistic deism. He's addressing the resid, res, residual, <laughs> residual, <laughs> residential, what was I? He's addressing the residual idea that was lingering from the Jewish thoughts that we are accepted by God by earning his favor and obeying the rules. See, and he says, guys, if that's true, I mean, if, if you look at the larger context, there's, there's so much there, <laughs> the Bible. Uh, if that's true, he's saying, y'all, Christ died for nothing. You've, met, you've nullified the whole thing, the whole foundation of what it means to be a Christian. You've pushed it to the side and said, no thanks, I can do this on my own, <laughs> right? He's addressing how we run the race. He's addressing the means by which we run the race, the Christian faith. He says it's begun by the Spirit and it is sustained by the Spirit, right? Are you now gonna finish by the flesh? See, the gospel is not once and done. It's not once and done. He's not, he's saying, don't receive nor finish it by obeying the rules. That's what he's saying. You don't receive nor finish the gospel by obeying the rules. It's all grace. It's only by faith can you enter. And especially in our day, right, with our insistence on our own sovereignty over our lives and our self-reliance, right, a truth like this will be utterly confounding. 
It was utterly confounding to them, and it is utterly confounding to us if we are actually reading the book, right? And just like they needed to hear over and over again uh, to avoid slipping back into self-reliance and self-glorification, so too do we need to hear the gospel, the simplicity of the truths of the gospel, right? And part of being in the South, in conclusion, is that we often think, I love the South, y'all. I'm, not, I'm just saying, these are some unintended consequences, right? is that we, we tend to think I'm a Christian because my parents were Christian and their parents were Christians and we all went to church and I was born in Atlanta, for goodness sake, right? And maybe you speak Christianese and you're able to blend in or maybe, maybe you don't speak that Christian type language and maybe you can't blend in. But what's clear to so many of us so often, right, is for a multitude, for a multitude of reasons, when people start talking about experiencing the joy and peace and victory of Christ, you feel like an outsider looking in. Right? Someone starts talking or exemplifying the joy of Jesus, the peace, the victory of Jesus. You listen with skepticism. Because, you know, and if you're in that position, you know, worship is just an enigma to you. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, if, if the whole thing is you obey the rules and God gets you in the door because by your moral effort, like, why worship? Why are we thankful? Like, I'm doing the work, right? Like, worship's confusing. You don't get it, right? See, it, it's like they are looking through a glass wall sometimes. It's like some people feel like this, right? And they see joy, and they see peace and victory that seem authentic, but they themselves feel locked out. And I, can I tell you, if you are that person, if, if, if you would say, yeah, that's, that's me. I, I, I feel locked out of the peace and the victory of Jesus. The joy of Jesus. When I hear people talking about that, it just feels like an alien thing. And I'm like, maybe they're pretending, seems authentic, I don't know. Can I, just, can I just tell you, man, that's a really difficult space. And you will not last long. That tension will end in one of two ways. That disconnect will end. Either you will walk away from the faith frustrated and confused, thinking, well, I tried that and it didn't work. Or what I'm asking the Lord to do in your heart and right now is through his spirit, you have a real encounter with the living God and find yourself being transformed in ways you never thought possible. I mean, what if you never really heard it? What if you've been hearing but never hearing? What if all you've encountered is Christians and services and sermons and songs right, and never encountered the one they're all supposed to be pointing to? Like, it's possible to grow up in the church and never hear the gospel. Really? Yeah, really, right? Jesus, over and over in his ministry, said crazy stuff like, for those who have ears to hear, hear. It seems that there is a state in which you can be where you hear something over and over and over without ever hearing it. That's a real thing. All the married ladies are like, yeah, duh, right? <laughs> like, you just described my husband, right? Like, I tell him five times, and he's like, you've never said that to me, right? It's, it's possible to hear and not hear, right? My wife, she, she'd be like, yeah, that's right. Sounds like you, right? It's possible to grow up in the church. And as 2 Timothy 3, 7 says, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is possible. This is biblically laid out for us to have a form of godliness, but to have denied its power. Amen. A structure of godliness. You know what a structure, a form? It's like a silhouette, you know, like you can see what it's supposed to look like, but it has no power to transform. Nothing's filling the silhouette. You try to fill it. You try to do it with your strength. It's a form of godliness, but you've denied its power, right? And this is exactly where the Holy Spirit longs to engage with you. 
He's called the advocate, the spirit of the living God, right? He's the one who takes what Jesus did and makes it known for us. And I've been praying for us as, as we sit over the next month sitting with the gospel that the Holy Spirit would so impact you in such a way that the transformation would be unavoidable. I've been praying for you this week that the way in which your life begins to be formed to the gospel would surprise even you. You'd find yourself being more kind and gracious to people that you are not normally kind and gracious. You'd find forgiveness welling up in you where it wasn't prior. That's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would do that kind of work in us as we sit with the truth of the gospel. Because when the truth of God and the spirit of God set on someone, it is almost set on someone. You know what I'm talking about? The truth of God and the spirit of God rest on someone's heart and life. It is impossible to avoid the transformation. There's little that can be done when the truth of God and the spirit of God begin to impact the way you actually think and live. When it begins to touch your heart, they can change the, I mean, it's like an atom bomb goes off the landscape of your life. I mean, everything's just reoriented around this person, Jesus. That's my prayer for you, man. It's my prayer that as we sit with the gospel, that you would have a Copernicum, with a Copernicum, with a Copernicum is that what it is? Yeah, revolution, right? Right, where Jesus becomes the sinner. And then you're, instead of, from the, instead of Jesus revolving around your life, you begin to be a satellite around the glory of Jesus, right? Man, that's my, Jesus, let's pray. Jesus, I just ask that every heart in this room, God, would begin to feel uh, the revolution of the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts and lives and beginning to help us be the people who are pointing to Jesus, gravitating around Jesus, Lord, all about Jesus. God, I pray that you would lift the name of Jesus in our hearts, Lord, that through the Holy Spirit, he would come and land on us and that Jesus would be lifted up, God, that for for the first time in our lives, God, Jesus would begin to intimately impact the way we actually live. Come, Holy Spirit. God, do the stuff in us that we, sermons can't do it, Lord. Good good songs can't do it. Lord, we are thrown on the mercy of Christ, Lord. And I just pray that as we sit with the truth of God, Lord, you would so fill us, Lord, that as we leave this place, God, as we come, as we sit with scripture, God, there'd be something happening inside of us, Lord, into a likeness that we like, but we would let you form us into a likeness that you like. Come, Holy Spirit. You're the only one that can do it. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Let's stand. Let's come to the table.